You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. Together we're looking this morning at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19, and you'll find this in the Pew Bible on page 961. It's 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll read together verses 12 through 19. That's 961 in the Pew Bible. Hear the word of God. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Well, if you had been reading that chapter before, you'd find that in verses 1 through 11... The Apostle Paul presented a clear and unambiguous evidence for the gospel of Christ. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus are controvertible historical facts. In fact, no facts of history are as well as documented, documented or more certain than those. We're told in 2 Corinthians 13 that every charge, every statement must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Well, we have the inspired testimony of the Old Testament prophets who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We have the divine testimony of Jesus himself who predicted his resurrection more than once. We have the heavenly testimony of holy angels who cannot deceive us. And we have the credible testimony of eyewitnesses that confirmed their testimony with their blood. So we have the inspired testimony, the divine testimony, the heavenly testimony, and the credible testimony. In fact, at one point, more than 500 brothers at one time saw the risen Christ. So hundreds of people, as Elder Miller prayed, could say that they personally saw the risen Christ. The guards themselves admit it. So there can be no doubt. It would be impossible, if you think about it, to deceive so many witnesses. 
But apparently, some in Corinth flatly denied the possibility of raising the dead. Dead men do not rise. No one ever has. So the bodily resurrection is impossible, or so they claimed. So having established the truth of the resurrection, in our passage for this morning, Paul underscores its significance. And indeed, he'll argue that there are five reasons why Christ's resurrection is not only important, but it's necessary. Number one, if there is no resurrection, he says, Christ himself couldn't have risen from the dead. And the logic is irrefutable. It's a syllogism. No dead men rise. Christ was a dead man. Christ didn't rise. That's a valid syllogism. The problem is it has an invalid premise. Who's to say that dead men don't rise? Who told you that? Some fools say that there is no God, but there are other fools who say that there is no resurrection. The material body, they claim, is just a husk that withers and decays to be forever lost. Since the soul is the critical element, the body is really not that important. So if this is true, then Christ's body still lies hidden somewhere in an obscure grave. But of course, as we have said already this morning, he did rise. The prophets predicted that he would rise. The apostles testified that he did rise. And the martyrs died knowing that he could rise. And all the evidence for his, its historicity makes this objection an absurdity. That's number one. Number two, if he did not rise, our preaching and your faith are both in vain, verse 14. And the apostle continues here with his sanctified logic to undercut the objections. If Jesus did not rise from the tomb, then we have no reason to believe. What are we doing here? Christianity would be a farce. The whole thing is a forgery. It's built upon sand. The apostolic preaching and the church's faith are simply empty and meaningless. And he goes on to say later on that if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile and you and me are still in our sins. Every member of this church, every visitor in these pews would still be under the guilt and condemnation of sin. Why? Why would that be the case? Well, because there would be no sacrifice. And if there's no sacrifice, there's no satisfaction. And in such a scenario, you and I would have no assurance that Christ's death was vicarious. He died a criminal's death. And if he's not raised, there's no vindication of his innocence. The world could surmise that he deserved to die on a Roman cross. But since he did rise, as credible testimony proves, then our preaching and our faith are both valid. The resurrection of Jesus proved his innocence and every claim to deity. It showed that God accepted his death as a satisfaction for sin. Thank God for that. Someone has said this, and I think it's a remarkable statement. The resurrection is God's amen to Christ's it is finished. I think he's right. At the cross, redemption was accomplished. At the empty tomb, it was confirmed. 
And if he hadn't risen, we'd have no proof or certainty about anything that he said. And if that were the case, then you and I should be most pitied as deluded fools. But then he goes on to the third one. If he didn't rise from the dead, we've misrepresented God himself, verse 15. And there we have the apostles then bearing false witness and all the heralds of the gospel being sadly deceived, myself included. And I believe few things are more blasphemous than misrepresenting God himself. Romans 3, verse 4. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. If Christ is not raised, then we are guilty of saying that God did that which he never did. That's misrepresenting God. Every gospel preacher would be guilty of proclaiming lies in the name of God. But did the apostles and the martyrs actually lose their lives for a falsehood? That's what I want to know. Did they suffer needlessly in this life, and will they suffer endlessly in the life to come? Because God will not suffer blasphemers to escape his righteous judgment. And if we're lying in the name of God, that's blasphemy. In that case, I believe then we'd be most to be pitied. But of course, that's not true. Paul describes the Lord Jesus as the firstborn from the dead in Colossians 1. So we go to number four. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then all our loved ones have perished, verse 18. And what sadness and sorrow if that were true. No future reunions. Those who've gone before us in death have perished. They've died in their sins. Believers who departed this world hoping for heaven ended up in hell. And how sad and tragic, because in that case, to be mistaken about eternal life would be the ultimate surprise. They perished. They lost everything for Christ here in this world, and they lost even more hereafter in the world to come. And then the martyrs' plea in the book of Revelation for vindication would never be granted. Do you remember what they said in Revelation 6? O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you'll judge and avenge our blood? But we know for a fact that Jesus did rise, and those martyrs will be satisfied. Every believing loved one whom you've lost and whom I've lost will welcome us into heaven. I probably shouldn't tell you this, but just before Shirley died, I asked her, when I get there, will you clap for me? And all she could do without opening her eyes was go like this. Number five, if Christ didn't rise, then we are of all people most to be pitied. What a delusion. What a waste of time. What meaningless suffering. We suffer for nothing, we die daily for nothing, we deny ourselves for nothing. If all of our hopes are only for this life, as Christians, you and I are most wretched. What good is mortifying the flesh? If we're just to be food for worms. We pass up worldly profits and pleasures for what? Makes no sense. But you see, therein lies the question. Who is it who is most to be pitied? 
As it turns out, I think we'll find it's not the Christian, though it may appear that way. In this life, we're called to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses and to endure tribulations. But as we read earlier, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. On the other hand, we have very good reason to pity the unbeliever, as we'll see. Because he is separated from Christ, strangers to the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And at all the funerals that he attends, he can find no valid reason for any comfort. When his turn comes, and it will, he'll be food for worms and fuel for the fires of hell. So I want us to examine this question regarding who it is to be most pitied. And Thomas Manton highlights three different groups for us to consider. First group, should we say that all sinners upon earth, that is the totality of mankind, are most to be pitied? That's option number one. Troubles, afflictions, misery are the common experience of all people. We know that. Job 5.7 says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. As fast and furious as sparks fly up, so do the troubles of the human race. We're born in sin, we're born into trouble. And sin and misery are inseparable. And all that we have reason to expect in this life really is misery. Isn't that what Genesis 5 says? He lived so many years, he begat so many kids, died. He lived, he begat, he died over and over again. The cadence of death. Mankind lives under the curse. It's permeated everything in this life. Every tombstone, every grave marker is a solemn, silent reminder of that truth. And as hard as it is to imagine, and it is difficult for us to think of it, each one of us is going to be laid in the grave. That's why we're told in Ecclesiastes 7, it's better to go to the house of mourning or to a funeral than to go to the house of feasting or a party, because that's the end of all mankind and the living take it to heart. He's not saying there that somehow sorrow is inherently better than mirth, that sadness is better than joy. What he's underscoring is that a funeral's pedagogical benefit serves the benefit of those who attend. It teaches us something. It reminds us about something. Because the heart is deceitful, so frequent reminders of death are necessary. Serious reflection upon the common fate of all men can lead us to wisdom. We're told that all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. And if you have lived long on this earth, you know that life can be full of tears. Jesus himself was a man of sorrows. Matthew Henry is right. He said, there is nothing in this world that we're born to and can truly call our own but sin and sadness. If you have more than that, God has been good. All people have troubles. And if they have no hope beyond the grave, it will lead them to despair. So perhaps 
In answer to our question, we should say that all people are most to be pitied. Sinners are to be pitied. It's a valley of weeping. But then I will go on to say that there are some among mankind, among the human race, who are more miserable than others. So that leads us to consider the second group. Should we say, of all people, those most virtuous are most to be pitied? Now, why would I say that? By God's common grace, there are some people in this world who have some virtue. They display higher degrees than most of honesty, courage, pity, etc. And these virtuous people deny themselves various sinful pleasures for the common good. In other words, they restrain their sinful desires for things that would otherwise impede decency and civility. They refuse to cut corners in business and strive to be reliable merchants. There's an example. Or they devote themselves to one spouse and they leave the other spouses alone. There's an example. Or they tell the truth in the courtroom so as to be dependable witnesses. And because of such morality, others who are shamed by their example despise them, right? Solomon tells us in Proverbs 29, one whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked. And as the virtuous attempt to curb public vice, they're vilified and abused. Honest politicians, for example. So the wicked and the immoral in this world feel guilty when they're confronted by moral virtue. And so perhaps what we should say is that the virtuous are the most miserable. And if that's true, then are they to be most pitied? Not all mankind in general, but the virtuous among us. Well, the answer is no, because there are still others in the world who endure more than them. And that leads to the consideration of the third group. Should we say... Of all people, Christians are those who are most to be pitied. You remember how Paul and Barnabas revisited and encouraged the churches that they planted, and they told them, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Because you and I are disciples of a crucified Christ. We're called to carry a cross daily. And our master experienced sorrows and endured indignities of the fallen world. And servants are not above their masters. As children of God, we as Christians are trained by the wise and painful discipline of a heavenly father. As subjects of a holy king, we're opposed by an evil world that hates us. As we grow in grace and we become more holy like Christ, the light exposes the evil And so even though you and I try to be civil and polite, we're despised by a world that detests us. As our beliefs are clarified, as our lives are sanctified, idolaters cannot tolerate our faith. And that's why Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
All the martyrs lost their lives because they followed Christ and spoke the truth. So here we have it. Troubles follow all of mankind. More hardships plague the virtuous. And the most difficult and severe afflictions befall the Christians. And on that score, it might seem to an outsider that Christians are the most to be pitied. We're disciplined by God, we're hated by the world, we're plagued by grief, we're denied worldly pleasures. From a worldly perspective, we are most to be pitied. But that's not the heavenly perspective. The sufferings of this present time, we're told, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. And the Christian's hope goes beyond this world, beyond circumstances. He's reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, and that can never change. His sins are forgiven. He's accepted by God. He's destined for heaven. He's an heir of salvation, and he knows that it won't be long, but that in a little while, he'll stand before the risen Christ. And we're taught that in his presence, there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And the Christian knows this for sure because on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, if our best life is now, then we who suffer are most to be pitied. But Scripture tells us that our best life is yet to come. Present sufferings are temporal, but heavenly glory is eternal, and there is no comparison between the two. And Jesus came forth to show that he conquered death and obtained eternal life, and that's a life that will never end, and it will be glorious. So we see why Paul considered the resurrection of Jesus to be so important. Among many other things, it proved that there is life beyond the grave. Because unless there is a better life that outweighs the troubles of this life, why is it, I asked, to be a Christian? Why? If there is no afterlife, just think of it. If death still reigns, if Christ is not raised, there is no hope. If he's not risen, as we indicated, Christianity is a lie. Your Bible is unreliable. And your loved ones, they're dead and gone. The Epicureans in that situation are absolutely right. If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now let me ask you, would any rational human being choose to deny himself and take up his cross and follow Christ for that? It was this thought that troubled Asaph and led him to the brink of despair. He said, my feet almost stumbled and my steps nearly slipped as you read. I was envious of the arrogant. He looked around himself at the landscape and he said, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. And I conclude that all in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. I've denied myself. All the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. I'm suffering. 
And day after day, he endured hardship while the unbeliever seemed to enjoy the good things of life. And it appeared to him temporarily that godliness was the loser and that the believer was most to be pitied. And he says, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And there you have it. It was that sermon on hell that helped him put things into perspective. Life is short. Eternity is long. Death is certain. And unbelievers go to hell. That put it in perspective for him. So Manton is right. Christ's worst is better than the world's best. Solomon says the wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous finds refuge in his death. <laughs> That's a heavenly perspective. So who is it in this sin-cursed world who is really most to be pitied? And I hate to do it on this wonderful Easter morning, but I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you the truth about unbelievers. They're in a Christless condition. They do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no one to redeem them. There is no one to save them. There is no one to intercede for them. And it's a sad and deplorable thing for any human soul to have no hope and to be without God in the world. No regard to him, no dependence on him, no special interest in him. And this life and all of its troubles are the best that they'll ever experience. Finally, the king will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. No hope beyond this life, no hope of forgiveness, no hope of eternal life, because they're estranged from God and bond slaves to Satan and children of wrath. And Malachi tells us who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears. You know something, Scripture tells us much about his coming, but it leaves some things hidden. What we know is that Christ's return will be sudden, unexpected, and for the purpose of judgment. That we know. And no secret will be left uncovered. And it will reveal those who worshipped sincerely, those whom the Father is seeking. Even during his earthly ministry, both demons and men trembled before him. And nobody can stand before the piercing eyes of the judge who searches the heart. So we're told in Revelation that unbelievers will call to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Where do you stand today? Do you stand with Christ or do you stand by yourself? If you stand with Christ, you are not to be pitied, but most to be admired. 
You need not fear the coming of the judge. Rather, you can rejoice in it. But if you stand by yourself, you are most to be pitied because you're without hope. And in God's providence, you've been given this opportunity on this Lord's day to repent and believe. And today, if you ask Christ into your heart, you'll have the advocate with the Father and you'll never need to fear again. So in conclusion, let me just say that I believe we should try to live in this fallen world in light of Christ's resurrection triumph. He is risen. Death has been overcome. It's been swallowed up in victory, and there is no need for the Christian to fear. He came to deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Fear of death. The king of terrors. And on that last day, we're told he will raise up our bodies to be reunited with our souls. And then, after being openly acknowledged and acquitted before the entire assembled universe, we'll live forevermore. So let's keep that in mind as we experience the miseries of a fallen world. And let's seek to cultivate by the appointed means an assurance of salvation. We're told by the Apostle John that those who share in the first resurrection are blessed and holy. The first resurrection. Anyone who shares in that first resurrection is exempt from the second death. Well, the first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection. The new birth. And so it's important to make certain of the new birth or the birth from above. Let me ask you this question that you've probably not been asked in a long time. Few people ask it anymore. Are you born again? Does the Spirit dwell in your heart? Is there evidence in your life of sanctification, becoming like Christ? Not perfect, but sincere. Do you long for heaven? Do you position yourself in places where you can receive of Christ's fullness. Because we're, so, we're told by our Lord himself, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Let's rejoice in this hope that Christ's resurrection proved certain. It's that to which the prophets and the apostles and the saints of every age looked. And at the end of time, as I said, he'll raise up the very same bodies in which we lived. He'll come in great power, full of glory, to judge the world in righteousness, attended by myriads of angels. And he'll give that shout, and the dead will be raised. And this perishable body will put on the imperishable, and this mortal body will put on immortality. And there will be no flaws, no defects, no deformities, no death, no pain, no mourning or sorrow. And you and I, if we're believers, will be fully and forever freed from sin and misery and filled with unspeakable joy. And then Jesus will grant all who loved him the crown of life and the crown of glory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I conclude, who in this world is most to be pitied? Certainly not the Christian. 
Most to be pitied is the one who has no share in these things. And we should pity him. And we should pray for him. And we should speak these things to him, hoping that if God extends mercy and bestows saving grace, that sinner will come to Christ. And may God enable him to do so. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.